Hello, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Layla Atassi, Metro columnist for The Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. It's March 3rd, and you're with a virtual City Club forum. A few days ago, the House passed the America Rescue Plan, a $1.9 trillion pandemic aid package. Among the items included in the bill are $30 billion in emergency rental assistance, and another $10 billion is earmarked for mortgage assistance, money allocated in response to the staggering number of Americans still out of work and behind in their utility bills, rents, and mortgages. Many of these individuals and families were able to avoid eviction thanks to an eviction moratorium issued by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But uncertainty is starting to set in. The moratorium is set to expire at the end of March, and a federal judge in the Eastern District of Texas issued a ruling last week that declared the existing moratorium unconstitutional. So what does this all mean for struggling renters, homeowners, and landlords? Are we on the verge of another local or regional housing crisis? Today, we'll talk with local leaders about the state of evictions and the efforts underway to help both renters and landlords in urban and suburban areas of Northeast Ohio. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. Text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club. We'll try to work them in. Now for today's speakers. Joining us today are the Honorable J.J. Costello, Judge of the Cleveland Heights Municipal Court, Kevin Nowak, Executive Director of CHN Housing Partners, Hazel Remish, Supervising Attorney with the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland, and the Honorable W. Monet Scott, Judge of the Cleveland Housing Court. I'd like to begin with Judges Scott and Costello, but panelists, please feel free to jump in at any point during the conversation. Judges, let's talk about the CDC's eviction moratorium and, and the impact that it's had on the sheer volume of cases that you're seeing. Has it resulted in a dramatic reduction in your caseload uh, over years past? And and do you suspect that the moratorium is the only reason for that, or are there other uh, are there other factors at play here? Well. I can answer, um, Judge Scott of Cleveland Municipal Court. So, of course, when dealing with the pandemic, we um, had a high volume of cases. So prior to um, the court closing down in the state of emergencies, um, we had um, 15, a little over 1,500 cases pending before housing court. Um, and then when we closed down for the 90-day moratorium, and opened back up in June 15th, around June 15th. Um, we ended up by the end of the year um, with 2,958 cases. So there is a drastic decline, which is a good thing because we are in the throes of a pandemic and these 90 days say that the court put in place initially, along with the CDC moratorium is getting people connected with um, rental assistance and allowing them to stay in their homes. And then on, in Cleveland Heights, obviously, we don't have the same numbers that Cleveland does in terms of the volume of, of eviction cases. Uh, but I can say that for the at the beginning of the pandemic, for approximately three months, this court on its own initiative uh, stayed all the evictions and continued them out. Um, and so there was a backlog at that point that, that we got through once we, we, we began. And there was an additional delay. Um, but once we had certain uh, masks in place, plexiglass in place, and other other conditions, we, we reopened. We also 
allowed for remote eviction hearings. So I do a combination of remote and in-person eviction hearings. Um, there was a bit of a backlog, backlog when we began those up again that we were able to work through. But, but similar, we've seen a reduction in the number of cases, eviction cases that have been filed. I think it's down, when I was looking at the numbers, it's down roughly a quarter, uh, about 25% over the last few years. So we also saw a reduction that presumably uh, is because in part uh, because of these CARES, first maybe the CARES Act and then the CDC moratorium as well. So the moratorium is set to expire March 31st, and, and we've seen it extended a couple times. Uh, we know that when it does expire, it's been foretold that we'll see an avalanche of new eviction filings. How soon do you expect the end of the moratorium to give way to a potential housing crisis? What will it look like? What do you, uh, as experts in the field, expect to see? I'll jump in here. Um, so Kevin Noack, CH and Housing Partners. I'm, I'm our executive director. And um, you know we're, uh, we're administering the rental assistance program across Cleveland Cuyahoga County. Um, you know, a couple of key facts from that program. Um, we've seen, we've redeployed over $12 million worth of rental assistance. And when we look at the need, the need keeps on coming. Um, we've seen $220 million worth of uh, income loss from that people have identified through the program when, when they've come in. And we're seeing people still not getting back to work. Uh, oftentimes, the, you know, when we look at a crisis, um, you know, so if we go back to 2008, 2009, um, you know, you see kind of a drip, drip. Um, in terms of in terms of job loss, um, as opposed to something that happened immediately, and then you know because we have not as a society uh, opened back up yet, you know, and we still have um, you know people that are out of jobs, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of people who haven't applied for uh, government assistance before as the first time that they're doing it, um, you know, still out of jobs, and the ones who have applied. So when you think about the retail worker, when you think about someone in, in a restaurant, um, you know, someone who's a home health care worker, a lot of these uh, a lot of these people had really uh, great jobs before the before the pandemic um, and still haven't recovered their full income that they had um, uh, at this point in time. Yeah. And Layla, I'll just add that um, this is Hazel with the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland. One of the things that we've seen um, so the, the CDC moratorium was initially supposed to expire in January. And in the month of January, we saw, or in the month of December, going into January, we saw an increase in eviction filings then. Um, and we anticipate that that was because people were thinking that the moratorium was not going to be extended. And so they were sort of getting their case in line. Um, I, I would assume that there might, if the moratorium is not extended now, we'll probably see that coming in, going into April as well. You know, I, I wanted to ask about the, um, uh, and Judge Costello, maybe maybe this is a question for you. That, that how is how does eviction look differently in in the suburbs? Uh, I've heard it said, and, and Hazel, you've mentioned this to me in, in past discussions that the financial crisis of this past year has led folks to experience housing insecurity who never had to deal with it before. And I'm wondering, once the moratorium ends. Do you expect to see a different demographic facing eviction than has historically been the case? Yeah, I think that's certainly possible. It seems to me that uh, the people that are coming before me, uh, nearly everyone is there because, uh, maybe not directly because of the pandemic, but uh, at least in, in some small or large part as a result. And in Cleveland Heights, the type of, of housing that we have here is, is certainly different 
in Cleveland and, and, and even um, in surrounding suburbs, we do not have the large apartment complexes, large landlords uh, as some other places do. By and large, the housing here in Cleveland Heights, the rental housing here in Cleveland Heights is smaller apartment units and uh, primarily single family, uh, single and double homes. Um, but I, I, from what I have seen that comes before me, uh, certainly it's affected across the board, all, all, all kinds of people that uh, a number of people that, that I've seen have indicated to me that they had you know, solid, well-paying jobs and, and suddenly were, were before me and, and certainly didn't expect to be. Um, Kevin, if we could talk a little bit about uh, more about rental and utility assistance, uh, what money what money is still available? What will soon become available, and and how far does that reach to address the level of need in the region? Sure. When we're looking at the money that's available, um, we still have some. Uh, the money that we have available uh, today is federal money. So uh, there was some money that the city of Cleveland and Cuyahoga County had set aside uh, during the summer last year uh, that we haven't fully deployed yet. Um, we anticipate deploying that, um, you know, through uh, through spring. Uh, we also have additional money coming from both the, the city and the county. Um, the city has already allocated uh, additional $10 million, um, you know, from of rental assistance, uh, you know, from federal money that's come in from when you hear about the uh, bill that was passed back in December at the federal level, um, there was certain dollars that the city of Cleveland and Cuyahoga County were uh, received a, as part of that. So the city of Cleveland has set aside money from that and, and the Cuy and Cuyahoga County is also setting money aside from that and is still determining what the amount of rental assistance they'll be providing uh, will be available. Um, so at this point, we're accepting applications, we're still deploying rental assistance, um, and then we'll have an additional tranche of money that will be coming in here in, in March and April uh, to help further support the need. Um, mm -hmm. The need, like I mentioned earlier, is 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 extreme. Um, you know, when we look at people that are continuing to apply, um, you know, we're we're you know in the in the over ten thousand that have applied to rental assistance over time, um, we're still seeing applications coming in at about a thousand um, applications a month. Um, we're seeing people when they're coming in. Um, oftentimes, they're coming in having owing you know continually more. So early in the crisis, people were just a couple of months behind. People who are applying now are several months behind. And, and some of the most recent federal legislation and as the city and the county have contemplated in deploying the dollars will allow for, will be more permissive to really cover up to 12 months of, of rent that has not been paid. Mm -hmm. That was gonna be one of my next questions is, is what, what's happening to renters uh, during, during this moratorium? Are they falling further and further behind in rent each month or, or is the rental assistance adequately preventing that I've wondered this so many times, how many recipients of rental assistance will eventually end up in eviction anyway? What's your sense? So, you know, when we, when we deploy our rental assistance, the first thing that we want to do is to make sure that it is addressing the, the, the need in arrears. So mm -hmm. if, a, if, a, if someone owes, you know, three, four, five, six, I mean, now, you know, potentially up to 12 months in arrears, we want to make sure that's covered. And when a landlord accepts those dollars, uh, they are acknowledging that they will not evict someone for the rent that otherwise we had paid from the past. In the current legislation from um, from uh, federal government, it allows for us to be able to forward deploy rent as well. So someone would be, if someone were income eligible, they would be able to get up to three months of additional rent, um, you know, forward looking. 
uh, which helps to uh, address some of that need. Um, you know, in terms of the overall need within the population, again, we aren't seeing, you know, uh, still that kind of extreme pickup, um, you know, in, in employment. So that automatically translates to kind of this continuing need that we're seeing of about a thousand you know, households applying a month for rental assistance. And, and we see that likely happening through the summer. Meeting that that need forward looking, is that a new a new feature of the rental assistance program or has that always been available? It is a new uh, it is a new feature uh, with the, with the federal uh, assistance. Um, so when we're looking at it, um, you know, I think the federal government in a lot of ways was responsive to this continuing cycle that we're seeing. Um, like you had mentioned earlier, Leila, well, you know, we're res we're resolving the issue today, which is the arrearages. What about someone coming back into the system and needing additional dollars? Um, so you know, we there were there were there were limited dollars before that were a little bit harder to deploy um, than what we have now. Um, that were part of the ecosystem of rental assistance. Um, but now with this, uh, with these new uh, federal money that's coming in, it will allow for us to more flexibly deploy, um, you know, rent it, it going forward. Is there any limitation to someone applying for assistance who has received it at some other point in the past year? Um, we can't have duplication of assistance, so we would not uh, we would not be able to um, you know double pay for what someone's already had assistance before, um, and we'll need to be contemplating you know uh, what the number of months that otherwise would be permissible um, you know and uh, you know uh, kind of concurrently um, you know yeah. in terms of that test deployed. Thank you. So, so just to, to shift gears for a moment, one, one of the most progressive policy undertakings of the past couple of years is Cleveland's Right to Counsel initiative, in my view, uh, guaranteeing free legal representation for families living in poverty and facing eviction in the city. The program officially launched this past summer, right in the heart of the pandemic, not a minute too <laughs> soon. Um, Hazel, you, you've been just the champion of this initiative. We've already seen some some promising data from the program's first months. Can you tell us a little bit about how Right to Counsel is changing outcomes for families in housing court? Absolutely. So, so as, an, as a legal aid advocate, um, I've always understood how important it is for um, tenants who are facing eviction to have an attorney represent them and how their outcomes can really change when that representation is part of the bigger um, puzzle. What we've seen over the course of the last six months, um, so Right to Counsel um, became effective July 1st, 2020. Um, so in the first six months, we um, were able to assist about 323 households. Um, the eligibility requirements right now are that a, a household has to be at 100% of the federal poverty guidelines and have a child in the household. So in that composition, we've seen about 323 households um, in the first six months and about 700 children that were impacted by Right to Counsel. Um, and in collaboration with CHN Housing Partners and also some of the other organizations that are handling rent assistance like Eden, um, we've been able to really successfully execute on that, what the outcomes look like. So for example, in the first six months, 93% of legal aid clients um, under the Right to Counsel program were able to avoid eviction or involuntary displacement. So that means that those households were, you know, they either stayed in their homes um, because of, or, you know, of our work and our work in partnership with CHN, um, or they were able to transition to other housing that meant that they were stable um, as they were moving on. So we've seen a tremendous success already 
um, and an impact. We knew it was important, but I think the pandemic has highlighted what a critical intervention this is when we're talking about stabilizing children, neighborhoods, improving housing conditions, um, and employment opportunities for this um, population. Mm. And, and there are ch challenges too, right, Hazel? Uh, making sure families know about this important resource and, and, and choose to show up to their hearings. Tell us about the difficulty in the outreach effort and how legal aid has tried to solve around those problems. Yeah, so um, it is a challenge. Generally, prior to the pandemic, prior to Right to Counsel, about 60% of um, people first facing eviction were not showing up to their hearing at all. Um, and so we knew that that was going to be a challenge altogether. You know, it, it it varies as to why people don't show up. The stress and the trauma of an eviction, um, having to go down to the justice center, um, instead of focusing on the legal case, they might focus on, I just have to move. A lot of people don't understand that you don't have to move until there's a court judgment that says you have to move. And so there's these challenges existed prior to right to counsel and prior to the pandemic. Um, what we've seen is um, that even every single, so in terms of our outreach, every single summons that goes out, so every person who's being served with, an, with eviction papers is getting an insert that tells them, you may be entitled to an attorney, you should contact legal aid. Um, and in addition to that, they're getting um, a, a, a personalized letter that tells them they might be eligible as well. We've done radio spots, social media, billboards, um, all kinds of outreach so that people know that this resource is out there. Um, but even then, and I think maybe Judge Scott can speak to this, is a lot of tenants are still not showing up um, or not calling us ahead of their hearing. And so in order to bridge that gap, we've been, um, we have staff available on every single court docket that is available to see if people are eligible and to screen them. Um, and then the court has been granting a one week continuous for us to be able to represent them. So there is still a large population of um, folks who are facing eviction that are not reaching out to us. Um, and we've been really working on encouraging people to know um, that this resource is available and that we um, can represent and we can help. Mm -hmm. and, and the digital divide creates issues too, uh, which are exacerbated greatly during the pandemic when virtual hearings are a necessity. Uh, Judge Scott and, and Hazel, you've both been working on some pretty innovative strategies on that front. Could you fill us in? Yeah, so I mean, I talk about it from the tenant perspective. Uh, you know, initially when the pandemic hit, the things that we saw was, um, I, I can talk about it. I don't know if everybody heard me, it just told me I unmuted. Um, but from a tenant perspective, one of the things that we've been doing at Legal Aid is, um, we've noticed that there is a digital divide, that tenants have a hard time um, either coming down to our offices because they have children that are in you know, school remotely or just generally have a hard time coming down or they're sick or there are other barriers that prevent them from having access to their hearing, which is being done um, virtually. So one of the things that we're doing at Legal Aid is we're actually having loaner tablets. Um, we're gonna launch this uh, sort of pilot, a little bit of a pilot program where we have tablets that are available and we'll make sure that our clients have access to them. They can take them home, access their hearing from their home um, and then return them to us. And it's just a pilot program at this stage, but really one way to bridge that gap. And we've been having discussions with the court as well about other uh, potential initiatives. Yes, thank you, Hazel. Um, 
as as working as the former Fair Housing Administrator, I always knew that the digital divide existed. It still exists and still dominates um, Cleveland's community. So in doing the virtual court rollout, one of the things that I was in the forefront of my mind was to establish a place where the community could come and participate in their hearings. I firmly believe that everybody should have access to justice. And so we did that by um, establishing a Zoom kiosk in the court. The unfortunate thing is it still required people to come to court. But you were put in a sanitized room and you were able to attend your um, your hearings, your eviction hearings, and criminal case hearings remotely and virtually. What we're doing now is trying to be a little bit more innovative and getting it out into the community, but it's so many moving parts um, to have this done. So we have to make sure we have the best platform to use, um, also the best devices to use, and then um, scout out locations to put it. So right now we are partnering with a couple of, of um, individuals that's very um, important in the community that's dealing with the um, digital access. Um, and so we hope to roll out in the next couple of months kiosks on different parts of the city of Cleveland in different buildings. We hope to partner in the future with the Public Library and also possibly the um, Cleveland Recreational Center. So that is what um, the court is trying to do to make sure people will still stay connected and still have access. Thank you. So in a few minutes, we'll turn to your questions uh, to all our viewers. If, if you have any questions for any of our panelists, please text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club and we'll try to work them in. Um, so uh, let's see. I um, Okay. Let's, let's talk about... Uh, uh, Let's talk about policy and solutions, since I think we're running a little bit low on time. We want to get to some questions from the audience. The pandemic has has really laid bare many of the weaknesses uh, that we have as a society. One of them clearly is how insufficient our resources have been for stabilizing communities and improving housing security. To the panel, um, anyone who would like to field this, once this pandemic subsides, could we be approaching a moment in which there is a true appetite to change that? If, if so, how do we seize that moment? We've talked in, I've spoken in the past to, 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 to some of you about, you know, vouchers and long-term rental assistance. Um, uh, if any of you would like to field this one, feel free. Sure, I'll, sure. Uh, I'll, I'll jump in here. This is Kevin. Um, you know, a couple of things on that. One is in terms of delivery of services. So when we think about delivery of services, oftentimes we think about um, services people need to come into a building, right? Um, on the courts, it's a different case, right? We need to, you know, in, in terms of access and digital access. But as we've been delivering our services that are safety net services, such as utility assistance and rental assistance, we've need to we've needed to be be conscious of and cognizant of and design, um, you know, programs that still can address the digital divide. But also, you know, we have been able to be more flexible for people. So when you think about you know a, a, a person who is low income, uh, whether they just lost their job because of the pandemic or because in a long in the long term um, they have poverty, they're in poverty. Um, having someone take time off of work if they are working, um, having to bring their kids into an office um, to deliver services um, isn't in itself an issue, 
right? Um, so what this has allowed for us to do is to begin to pilot that uh, th those sort of um, and beyond pilot since we're now almost a year in, um, you know, a different delivery system that provides more consumer choice for social safety net services. Um, second is this has allowed for us to think about engagement with landlords in a different way. Landlords are in the housing business, they aren't in an eviction business. And though we're focusing on eviction today, most landlords that we have worked with have wanted to find a way to make it work. So as, as, a, as a community that's delivering social net services, we have this real opportunity between you know, what, we're, what we're doing today and talking about today with rental assistance, but then also with the Let's Save Cleveland work to engage landlords. Um, and finally, I would say, you know, it's, it's, I, I hope for most of us in the community, um, you know, this experience with the pandemic has shown us the need and, and for us as a community to become more self-reliant, right? Um, in terms of the pandemic response, uh, you know, it, it's something that, you know, we, we've needed to address and really need to take uh, control of at the local level. Um, also, even though we've been able to receive federal money, it's been that local deployment, which is what gets it out. So my hope is, you know, what we're seeing here is, a, is an ongoing need um, unfortunately, for rental assistance, utility assistance, and that we'll begin thinking big locally about ways to fund that, um, you know, at the city and the county level uh, to help to create more sustainability in housing within our community. And just to follow up on Kevin's point, I would concur with what he was saying in terms of landlords having uh, an interest and not being in the business of evictions. And that's absolutely true, and, and it's been my experience, you know, both in my practice before taking the bench and now taking the bench. I, I'm focused in my court and push as best I can uh, for the parties to settle. And I have found even before the pandemic and certainly now as well, that uh, both parties, if they're given the, those, the, the opportunity to discuss it, uh, either a pay to stay agreement or an agreed move out date, whatever the agreement may be, knowing that the court then will enforce that uh, gives both landlords and the tenants the assurance to, to, to enter into those agreements. and, and I found it to be largely successful and avoided a great number of evictions as a result. Just as a as an example, I, I had an eviction docket this morning and I just looked, just I was curious to see how many and uh, almost 80% of the cases that I heard today ended up settling. And of those that didn't, the only reason that they didn't is, is because the tenant unfortunately didn't show up. Um, and so I've found great, great use and great utility in, in, in those settlement processes. And certainly if there's funding uh, available to to assist tenants uh, to bridge that gap and, and to make up the old past payments and potentially even bridge the gap going forward for some time. Uh, I, I have no doubt that, that things like that would be hugely successful. Since the topic of landlords has come up, we've actually been receiving a lot of questions. We'll turn to questions now. Um, many of them are, are sound seem to be from landlords who have who have questions about the system sensitivity to their needs too. Uh, the first question is, what is the solution for landlords who need to pay their mortgages and bills? Without this income, the much needed availability of units will be reduced contributing to the housing crisis. Any thoughts on that? I can say in the housing court, we encourage mediation. And in doing so, Try to educate the landlords in that rental assistance, and you know how you look at it is rental assistance is there to make the landlord whole. So if you have a tenant that's about twenty two hundred dollars behind in rent, and they haven't been employed since the onset of COVID, your interest is to encourage the tenants, and it can be done through housing course mediation. 
We have um, one ADR specialist. We have one highly certified uh, mediator, and we've just trained our entire housing court um, specialist in um, getting Ohio Supreme Court certified for mediation. And so you, you want to encourage the tenants to participate in the rental assistance program. And that way it allows the um, landlords to receive funds that they would have received had the pandemic not happened. Here's another question that actually takes it one step further and asks, should there be a tax break or greater assistance to rental property owners who have lost significant income due to the pandemic? Anyone from our policy, uh, among our policy experts who'd like to field that one? So, um, so you know, Kevin here, I, I think a, a couple of quick things. One, CHN is also a landlord. Right. So, um, you know, we're not just re administering the rental assistance program, but we're also a landlord. Um, we own or manage about 2,200 units, uh, you know, across Northeast Ohio. And it's something that for us, too, it's impacted, you know, impacted our portfolio. Um, you know, as a landlord, you know, we had really low delinquencies uh, and defaults um, on our, on our uh, uh, um, from our tenants. Um, you know, and we've seen that increase significantly, um, threefold plus. Um, you know, from the beginning of the pandemic to today. And it seems to have really kind of, you know, stabilized. And when I say stabilized, I mean, you know, really got consistently been now at this higher rate. Um, and we're hoping that we'll be able to bring that down over time. Rental assistance has, uh, you know, has been the tool that has been most available, um, you know, to, to landlords nationally. Um, you know, are there ways that, you know, the, the government kind of local, state, federal could, you um, you may uh, uh, kind of apply greater relief through tax breaks. I, I think those there are options there, um, you know, and, and under some circumstances. Uh, but to date, we've seen that rental assistance being the, uh, the the most effective tool, or at least the most utilized tool nationally. I was just going to add that this is the one instance where both the landlord and the tenant have the same interest, which is, you know, we want the rent paid. We want the landlord to get paid because that's how we're going to stabilize the housing. Um, in terms of like a policy sort of angle and perspective, you know, one of the things that we have really benefited from as part of the pandemic, I think, as a community is sort mm -hmm. of organizations coming together that we're working in similar mm -hmm. space and saying, OK, well, what are you doing? What are you doing and how can we collaborate to make it? easier on this population that we're trying to serve. Um, and that's, you know, an example of that is to council and sort of our relationship with United Way uh, as a convener and as a partner, as we're getting the word out about um, right to council and services that are available and 211 coming to the table as well. So I think one of the, one of the things that it has, um, that we should be looking at as a policy issue is what are the spaces that we're working on? What can we do together to make it better um, and not, you know, operate sort of in a vacuum as we move forward as a community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This question is uh, probably directed to, to Kevin. Uh, the, the questioner asks, I'm wondering if Kevin and the judges could speak about the problems with extreme delays in processing applications for rental assistance. I work with people who apply for this help and they're waiting months to get this help or are unable to get updates on their applications at all. How can CHN and other organizations improve their services to meet this need? 
Sure. I think the, the first thing is, you know, receiving that feedback is important, right? Um, you know, we're looking at, uh, you know, at, at a system and a system that has had that much, um, kind of as many applications into the system as we have, um, you know, uh, hearing it firsthand, um, you know, from, from landlords is, is really important. So I think the first, I want to say thank you for that question, because I, it's, it's something that um, we, as we're thinking through kind of system development is important. Um, second is, you know, from CHN perspective, as we're entering now uh, this March, we're increasing our staffing. Um, you know, we're going to be doubling our staff that's working on rental assistance, uh, a little plus from that even, um, to ensure that as we see this kind of continued need, um, we're able to get the dollars out, um, you know, more quickly. Um, we did have, uh, this was a system, particularly when we started, that was brand new for, you know, as, a, as kind of a countywide system. Um, so there's obvious hiccups from that. And then from there, it's really been us trying to work through, uh, at least for our program, um, you know, the sheer volume um, and, and, addressing the and addressing staffing need uh, when we've been able to and, uh, and we are now. I can say with Housing Court um, and to those individuals that's assisting with um, tenants that are in search of rental assistance or in need of rental assistance, you know, we don't want to encourage landlords to file an eviction in order to get the process um, moved quicker through CHN. But if you've already submitted the application and the landlord has decided to proceed with an eviction, you do it is to your interest, and that's to the tenant's interest, um, to let CHN know that you have a pending case and give that case number. Um, those those um, applications, if I'm not mistaken, they will automatically be escalated because you're right in the throes of being evicted. So that takes a little bit more precedence. That's the only thing I can say with regards to housing court. It is up to the tenant to let um, CHN know once they filled out the application to, um, you know, expedite those fees, those funds. Another question. Have either of the judges sought guidance from the Ohio Supreme Court so that there's more uniformity among the many local municipal courts in the handling cases, in handling cases where CDC declarations are filed? Uh, judges, I, we discussed this the other day that, um, there's just very little guidance and, and too much left up to interpretation. Um, how would you respond to, to that question? I would say that that's actually how sort of our system works, right? Is that the trial courts are making decisions. It then goes up to the appellate court and, and ultimately the Ohio Supreme Court or, or otherwise. It's how the system works. And, on, and it's not an ideal system. And certainly if you're getting, if you're in different courts, they're all handling things different ways. I can, I can certainly understand how that would be a difficult for a landlord, um, but that that's the system, and that it sort of goes up and then comes back down. As, and there, and um, on my end, and, and I've had conversations, and I, I know with Judge Scott and with other judges, municipal court judges in the area, especially early on. Uh, this was brand new to all of us, right? As with much with this pandemic, this was brand new. That that, that CDC moratorium was brand new. Um, no one had ever seen anything like it. And, and so there was a lot of communication between municipal court judges uh, in terms of how each of us were going to handle it. And so while no one judge is going to tell another municipal court judge how they should do it, um, I think there was a lot of back and forth and, and, and some common ground that was found in terms of how we were going to handle the, the, those declarations. 
Um, so I, I can say that that happened. And, um, and I think that was helpful. Uh, again, it's not going to be completely uniform. You've got different judges uh, making different decisions, but um, there was, I can say that there was absolutely that conversation early on and it continues. I have to agree to that. Um, it's only two house, housing courts in the state of Ohio. And so um, myself and Judge Howe were in communication about how we would handle it. It was so much left up to interpretation. And I think a lot of people have to know that this CDC declaration form and the CDC moratorium is a proactive moratorium, that it's not automatic, that the tenant must do certain things. They must first qualify and then they must pay something, pay some type of rent. And our court, um, we are on the belief that people should still shelter in place um, until the end of this pandemic, which we hope is sometime soon. But also either you're, you need to be paying a portion and processing for rental assistance. Um, and so it is not automatic and we are allowing landlords to come back and contest it. If they have waited and tried to communicate with the tenants, we're, we're starting to see those incidents where the tenant is not doing anything to um, advance their interest in paying their rent. So we revisit those cases and I need for landlords to know that they do have that option um, to contest the CDC declaration. Hazel, from your perspective as an attorney, as an advocate, wh what are your observations or frustrations regarding that uh, uh, gray area? Uh, I know you've mentioned before um, the kind of questions around what qualifies as uh, someone seeking uh, government assistance and things like that. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so one of the things that we're seeing, um, and, and this is not a criticism on our partners who are processing rent assistance, this is in part, um, the requirements of the funding have set, is set up in a way that in order to access the funding, it's really quite burdensome for the tenant. Um, there's a lot of documents that a tenant has to gather in order to be able to actually get the assistance. And what we've seen, um, especially with right to counsel, is that the role of the attorney has changed quite a bit. Um, so as just Scott mentioned, the CDC declaration um, it, the, the tenant has to raise it um, in order to invoke the protection. And so what we're seeing is that oftentimes tenants don't actually know how to navigate that process without an attorney by their side, sort of evaluating whether they're eligible and then subsequently um, process, helping them process that application. Um, so it's all of the interventions that really um, coming together make a huge impact um, but it does, navigating it alone um, is challenging for, for tenants and it relatively frustrating for landlords um, because of the, the same reasons we've been just talking about, right? Sort of the application process can take a long time. Tenants often don't know how to, how to navigate it. It's been going on for so long. Um, with regards to the interpretation of the CDC um, order itself, advocates have been left to argue um, you know, where does it apply? How should it be applied? Um, and, you know, and whether or not really what we should be looking at is, does that particular case, um, is it protected under the CDC, CDC order? Or if we decide that it's not protected, is it going to frustrate the intent of the order, which is for people to be able to shelter in place and not have to spread 
COVID-19. So there's been, it's been challenging, I think, all around as advocates, tenants, landlords, and the courts are having to process the cases and come out with rulings. Mm -hmm. uh, here's a question for, for Kevin. Um, what's, the, what's the wait time for the rental assistance once you've applied? Sure, that, that really varies in, for, uh, in a couple of different ways. Um, you know, some of it is depending upon how engaged the tenant is. Um, you know, some of it is how engaged the landlord is. And then when we look at whether or not someone is in that eviction status. So, um, you know, as Judge Scott mentioned earlier, um, you know, about, uh, you know, being able to expedite, um, you know, cases that are in eviction status. Um, you know, Legal Aid has been one that uh, has, has been an organization has been one of our kind of greatest referral uh, partners, uh, you know, with that. So, um, you know, that's something that can expedite and have address right away sometimes. Um, but sometimes it will take, you know, you know, 30, 60, 90 day process with, you know, between getting documentation together, um, you know, from the tenant and the landlord, depending upon how engaged they are and what that volume may look like. But when we talk about eviction um, and in uh, and, 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 and a, a case that's in eviction, and if we're made aware of it, um, you know, then it's uh, it's something that we're able to expedite right away. Um, and it, it, it takes, you know, the, the, the tenant, you know, making sure that the tenants understand that is something that we've been trying to do um, and something that we'll, we'll continue to do and appreciate the, you know, uh, the, the courts, both with uh, Judge Scott and Judge Castillo, making sure to point that out. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's someone, someone has asked the question about uh, the possibility of landlords accessing rental relief for tenants when tenants move out of the property while owing months of rent. Uh, are landlords uh, permitted to do that or is that, uh, how does that work with the program? Sure. Um, the system's a tenant-based system. Um, so, you know, it's the tenant that would, uh, that would apply, um, you would need to income qualify the tenant. Um, so each of the tenants need to be something that's called 80% uh, of the area median income or less, which you know, if you take a family of four, that's about $60,000. Um, if you take a single individual, that's about 42. So that we would need the, we would need the tenant to initiate the application. Um, and the tenant would need to, uh, kind of income verify, um, show that they're eligible based upon a COVID related, um, you know, issue, which is through a, a self attestation. Um, and then, you know, the, the landlord themselves then would need to kind of, uh, you know, confirm, you know, what was due. Um, so the landlord would not be able to initiate that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, question. We, we once had the Cleveland Tenants Organization. It no longer exists. How has its absence affected your work? whomever would, would like to respond. I mean, I can certainly talk to that um, a little bit. So one of the things that um, we've seen with Right to Counsel specifically is that in other jurisdictions who have implemented um, similar programs, it was really tenant driven. Um, so there was a lot of tenant organizing um, that drove that effort. Uh, we did not have that um, in Cleveland. And we sort of see it now, um, other organizations trying to step up. So for example, when CTO um, ceased operations, Legal Aid took over their tenant information line, and that's still ongoing. So we still um, provide that service. Um, and recently, there have been other organizations who have um, risen up to the challenge and are doing outreach, um, door knocking, and delivering materials to tenants um, that generally CTO would have done. So it's certainly still a void in our community. Um, and, and I think some of the outreach that we're doing with um, United Way is 
facilitating some of that in the sense of empowering tenants and getting information out there, but certainly um, a void that's, that still needs to be filled in our, in our communities. Mm -hmm. Hazel, how can, how can we scale up right to counsel for tenants? Um, so right now, as I mentioned, it's, you know, a very limited criteria. Um, other jurisdictions have broader income limits um, or no income limits at all. Um, you know, as a, as a community, we really need to um, think about what that might look like going forward, but certainly it could be an expansion based on just eligibility and who does it apply to um, based on income or the household composition, which are very limiting right now in a very small pool of people that are um, really benefiting from the program. Um, how about a, how about a countywide expansion? <laughs> I know this is a political issue, a political question, but. <laughs> One can dream, right? <laughs> well played, Hazel. <laughs> Here, here's another question. Once the eviction is filed, if it's resolved through the use of the federal funds, do those evictions remain on the tenant's record? when filling out applications for future rentals? It's a great question. Um, in, in the Cleveland Housing Court, if it's resolved and there's been an AJE, I've seen um, throughout all the AJEs that are coming through, that once the back rent is paid and they're current on their um, rent going forward, that the parties agree to allow a ceiling of eviction. Now, um, ceiling of eviction is something specific to Cleveland Housing Court, the city of Cleveland. Um, we have had a lot of people come from different jurisdictions asking that their records be sealed, um, but our jurisdiction is very limited to Cleveland and Blackmark. So, uh, and those are evictions that occurred in the city of Cleveland and the city of Blackmark. So, um, we have um, kind of implemented that and encouraged that during the mediations. And that, that way it keeps everybody on task and allows people to, if they are willing to vacate. And I have to say, Legal Aid has been a good partner in encouraging a lot of that movement and mediation also. When you do have tenants um, that are represented by right through right to counsel. And, and so we we tend to get on top of those ceiling of eviction records so that people can relocate and find alternative housing. And I think there's a misunderstanding um, in that just because there's an eviction that was filed doesn't necessarily mean that the person was evicted. And so a lot of times when landlords are doing a search and they see, oh, they had an eviction filed against them, well, they're not looking at what the outcome of that case was. And it, the outcome of the case could have been a dismissal. It could have been a, an agreement of some sort that didn't actually lead to a full-blown eviction. And so I think there's some misconception that a filing is automatically an eviction. So for those jurisdictions that don't have um, a motion, you know, a ceiling process, um, one, it's discretionary, so it can still be done in those courts, even if there isn't a rule. Um, but two, uh, it doesn't automatically mean that the person was evicted and had a judgment against them. Another question, how, how does CHN address the inherent conflict of interest between being a landlord and being the gatekeeper of rental assistance funds? I, I think that's a good question. Um, you know, so something that we've done is, you know, our portfolio is treated the exact same as everyone else's. 
Um, and we've actually created a firewall between our property management team, um, who's run through a completely different part of our line of business, or part of our company, um, with the team that's running the rental assistance. So, you know, we don't have any greater level of communication. We don't provide, you know, kind of special treatment for the team. Um, you know, it's something where, you know, we as organizations are 40,000 families annually, um, you know, throughout Northeast Ohio, um, you know, I mentioned earlier our portfolio of uh, properties is about 2200 so most of what we do uh, per, you know substantially all of what we do annually is delivering utility assistance weatherization other emergency assistance for families housing counseling um, and those parts of the company are run you know by a different line than the one that is uh, that reports up through property okay I'd like to return for a moment to the to the CDC's moratorium. Uh, the federal judge in Texas last week declared it unconstitutional. I, I'm pretty sure the Justice Department already has has filed an appeal there. Um, do our panelists have any thoughts on how or whether that case will affect us? So the decision itself is not binding on our local courts. Um, and so from our perspective, the CDC moratorium is still in place um, and we can still continue to utilize that as a tool to keep people housed. Okay. Uh, I, I just at, at this point, you know, too, I just like to reiterate the importance of, and, and there are jurisdictional issues with this, right? For, for the courts, they can't just decide kind of what they want to do, you know, for, for, you know, Judge Scott and Judge Castillo, right? And, you know, there are, there are you know, within our system, our court system within, you know, laws in the state of Ohio, there's only certain things that, you know, that local jurisdictions can do, right? But, you know, those are laws that can change, right? And I, I just want to go back to that point I made earlier about, you know, us really providing for that, you know, kind of local support and control um, is something that, you know, I, I think is important because then it would allow for, you know, Judge Scott and Judge Costello, uh, if that jurisdiction were, were um, provided to, to implement, um, you know, that sort of moratorium, um, we relied too much on the on the federal government, you know, to to um, address these very local issues. Mm -hmm. So we have just a few moments left. I I want to just uh, thank our panel, but also I'd like to give each of you a chance to uh, provide your final thoughts on how we've uh, weathered this pandemic as it relates to uh, getting people through some of the toughest times and, and, and the worst of housing insecurity and, and what lies ahead. Um, if, if, I, if, if Judge Scott, would you like to, to begin kind of offering your final thoughts? My final thought is, is that just participate in your hearing. If we can get more people to attend their eviction hearing the first time, we can help you on the front end instead of scrambling to help you on the back end. We have legal aid um, sitting in on all the virtual hearings. We're doing those basic fundamental screening questions right off the top if the tenant attends so that we know they qualify or possibly qualify for right to counsel. And then it's just about our, our specialists connecting them with resources. If you're a veteran, if you qualify as a senior citizen, if you qualify as a single parent with minor children at home, it's resources there, but if you don't attend, you won't know about it. And then you, you're facing evict eviction, and then you're coming in to file those motions to say. And it is just a more drawn-up process, and that motion may get denied. 
So I have to say that never in the life of any of us has it been this much money uh, granted to assist with rent. And so keep those lines of communications open so that the landlords talk to the tenants and you're not worrying about, well, they've been evicted, so how can I get reimbursed? That's not what rental assistance is for during the pandemic, is to assist the tenants to stay in place. So um, I would encourage you to talk to your tenant while they're falling behind on rent and get them connected with Cleveland Housing Network for rental assistance. So just participation all around and access and justice. So those certainly those are great points, Judge. Um, I want to first just thank the City Club for putting this on. It's been great to be a part of this, and I think this is helpful in and of itself. And I guess what I try to focus on is the ways in which some of these changes that were forced upon us because of this pandemic might be useful as we hopefully end, end this and, and move forward. And so as an example, the fact that now in my court, they're both in-person and remote hearings for evictions, to me, that's something if I can, that I intend to probably keep on even after all this is going on. I think it makes both on the landlord side and the tenant side, the ability to appear remotely, save them a trip to my, to, to, to my courthouse, um, maybe less time that they have to take off work, childcare, et cetera. Those are the kinds of things that I think that we need to focus on. Uh, and some of the other things that have been discussed today in terms of bringing together different organizations, all these things are, are, are critical that when we're finally through with this, that, that we continue on with those great ideas. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, Hazel, would you, would you like to offer a few final thoughts? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I agree with the judge uh, just to encourage folks to participate in the, in the hearing process to reach out to legal aid as quickly as possible. Um, but in addition to that, I think as a community, uh, we have to recognize that the pandemic has really highlighted how critical and basic um, of a need housing is um, and how important that is not just for the individuals, but for our neighborhoods and our schools and just the general success of our population. And so I really think that, um, you know, we really need to begin to focus on that um, as a community, um, on stabilizing our, our housing and making sure that people have access to safe, decent, affordable housing um, and making that a priority. Thank you. Thank you. And, and Kevin, what are, what are your thoughts as we wrap up our forum today? Sure. I, I'd first like to, again, thank uh, for being on here. This is just an incredible opportunity to be able to you know, share this uh, screen with uh, you know close colleagues here um, who are trying to address these housing issues um, and appreciate all their work. Um, you know, when we're when we we're looking at this, I, I think, you know, the learnings that, you know, Judge Costello had met, had mentioned, um, you know, the the, you know, kind of participation that Judge Scott had mentioned and and then Hazel really bringing it home with the need for safe, decent, affordable housing and us needing as a community to prioritize that. Um, you know, uh, housing stability and homeownership opportunity for all is what we focus on at CHN. It's the power of permanent address. And so when we look at housing stability, there's never been a greater challenge to it than today um, because of that acute job loss and we should learn from it and uh, really prioritize it going forward. Thank you. Thank, thank you all so much. I, so I so appreciate the work you do. And thank you at home for joining us for today's forum on efforts to combat evictions and, and help both renters and landlords in urban and suburban areas of Northeast Ohio 
We've been talking with the Honorable J.J. Costello, Judge of the Cleveland Heights Municipal Court, Kevin Nowak, Executive Director of CHN Housing Partners, Hazel Remish, Supervising Attorney with the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland, and the Honorable W. Monet Scott, Judge of the Cleveland Housing Court. Uh, today's forum is the Colleen Shaughnessy Memorial Forum. A St. Louis native, Colleen came to Cleveland in the 1980s as Sherrod Brown's campaign manager and eventually served as his deputy director. She was an enthusiastic, honest, and idealistic community builder. Her energy was contagious, and she demanded commitment and social awareness from all those in her life. We are grateful to her family, friends, and colleagues for honoring her with their endowment gift in support of City Club programming. All City Club's virtual forums are presented for free every week, thanks to generous support from Bank of America, Key Bank, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC. You can join them in supporting City Club's mission by making a contribution online or becoming a member at cityclub.org. I'm Layla Atassi. Thanks for joining us today. Our forum is now adjourned.